Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. All right, guys, today, unbelievable episode on the science of sleep. We have the one and only Greg Potter who has a PhD in circadian biology, sleep, diet, and metabolism, as well as an MSc in exercise physiology. On top of that, he is the chief scientific officer for a health startup company that is looking to create and build a scalable, preventative healthcare solution that uses advanced analytics to give users adaptive, personalized health guidance. I completely read that off of his LinkedIn profile. I'm not going to act like I memorized that because it is quite complicated, but the reality is, is this dude is smart. Not only is he smart, he's just a great guy. As I had this conversation with him, I just realized more and more that he just generally cares. He generally gives a shit about helping other individuals. So I think you're going to really feel that from him and you're going to see just how much value and how much information he has to give completely free. And he asks for nothing in return. I even tried to get something out of him like, Hey, where do you want people to find your stuff? Where do you want people to follow you? What can people do to help you? And he's like, no, 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 no. I don't want any of that. I just want to help people be healthier and sleep better. Um, Really, really cool dude. Really, really smart. And we're going to dive deep into the science of sleep. I've done one episode already with Dr. Amy Bender diving into the science of sleep. So this is kind of like the part two of sleep, if you will. But we're going to dive even deeper into performance, aesthetics, body composition, nutrition, training, things like that. Things that really matter to a lot of the individuals listening who care about training in the gym dieting to lower body fat levels, building as much muscle as possible, and being a productive entrepreneur, business owner, mother, father, so on and so forth. So this episode is really geared towards the science of sleep, but in an applicable way for top performers, top level performers who want to level up everything in their lives and really understand just how important sleep is. Before we get into the show, I do have two quick announcements. The first one being there is a link in the description of the show. If you want to come and check out a live podcast here in Seattle in the city, I believe it is $10. So very, very cheap admission with myself and my good friend, fellow coach, Paul Klingen, and uh, sponsored and hosted by Lululemon here in Seattle. If you want to come watch us do a live podcast. He is going to interview me for his show where we're going to dive into my story a little bit. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time doing a live Q&A. So I really want to encourage everybody who is relatively close to the Seattle area, come join us. There's a link in the show notes for all the information needed. Come join myself, Paul, and Lululemon. It's going to be a great time. going to be really cool. And it's going to be the first live podcast I've ever done. I've done a lot of seminars, never done a live podcast. So I'm super pumped about this because it's going to be really cool to be doing a Q&A format while recording with Lululemon in front of a bunch of people. So I'm really, really excited about this and I would love for you guys to come out. I believe there is a 40-person cap. Um, I might be lying about that, but I know there is a limited audience, so I want you guys to jump on this. This is last minute. It is next week. But if you're in the area, it's cheap. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great way to connect with myself and others. And it's going to be sponsored by Lululemon, which is going to be awesome. So come check that out. There's a link in the show notes below. The next thing I want to remind you guys of real quick 
is that next week on Monday, the 9th, my program built for you, the self-auto-regulated, self-individualized program for hypertrophy is going to release. It's a long-ass title. It's really just built for you. The reason I titled it Built For You is simple. It is literally something you can design for yourself, not only in the way that you can adjust and auto-regulate your biofeedback, your volume, your intensity, and your actual exercise selection so you can choose the exercise that work best for your body, your biomechanics, your limb length, so on and so forth, but it's also something that educates you about the process. There's a 38-page ebook prior to the training program that dives deep into program design, movement patterns, volume, intensity, frequency, RPE, effort, what the research shows across all of these things, what my experience shows across all these things, warming up, mobility. So much is going into this. I'm super pumped about it. I'm super excited about it. It is the most quote-unquote revolutionary program I've ever created because it's the first one that is an actual program that you can purchase and download but can actually adjust as if a coach is working with you. So this is extremely valuable. It's more valuable than any program I've ever dropped. Really, really excited about this especially because you guys can use this for a long time coming. There's really no end to this program because you can keep adjusting and adjusting and periodizing this as it shows you how to do in the program so you never get bored and you can constantly progress. I'm talking if you want to follow this for three months or nine months, you literally could do that and it's going to teach you everything you need to know about that and that releases on Monday. I will do a podcast on Monday, so I will be sure to remind you guys. If you're not on my email list, you can jump on that by clicking the link in the show notes below. You can get access to exclusive content as well as your free ebook, The Nutrition Hierarchy, and I will send a reminder there first on Sunday night. All right, guys, no more interruptions, no more rants, no more promos, no more reminders, none of that. Let's get into the science of sleep with the one and only Greg Potter. Greg, man, I'm super excited to have you here. Uh, like we were just discussing I get questions all the time on sleep, man. And we've had another sleep expert on the podcast, a sleep uh, specialist, I should say. And uh, you you know her as well, Dr. Amy Bender. It was a great podcast. We had a lot of great feedback from it. So I'm excited to have round two of the sleep discussion because I think it's a it, it's not only one of the most important factors when we talk about physique development and performance, which is most of what, um, it's what most of the people listening to this are interested in, but it's also just very I guess not, not necessarily confusing because it's pretty simple, like just get your damn sleep, but there's so much to it and there's so much cool research being done. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. But before we go any further, um, tell the listeners who you are. So like give us a brief introduction of, of kind of who Greg is and then also how you got into the science of sleep. Sure. Well, first, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. I am currently working as chief scientific officer for a digital health startup over here in London. and. Before that, I did a PhD in sleep and circadian rhythms. That was at the University of Leeds, and I looked at the interactions between sleep, diet, and metabolic health specifically. And I became interested in sleep and circadian rhythms, really in response to a general interest in health that started when I was 11 years old. I hurt my back playing rugby, and I also became more self-conscious at the age, as most people do. So I began exercising more, lifting weights, and just developed an interest in nutrition and body composition and become stronger and more powerful for sport too. And during most of my free time while I was at school, I would have my head in books. I'd be finding out about strength conditioning, finding out about sports nutrition, and while I had a place to study English literature at university originally, I actually went on to study exercise science. 
and then did a master's in exercise physiology as well. And during both of those periods, worked in strength conditioning and also worked as a coach to sprinters, track and field sprinters. And worked as a personal trainer, did some work in sports massage therapy too. So I have a broad interest in how lifestyle affects health. And in my current work for that digital health startup, I'm trying to help people at scale with their health through lifestyle interventions. I love it, man. And this is this is kind of a, this obviously wasn't planned question, but since you have such a, a well-established background, but also inside of personal training and fitness and nutrition, things like that, um, were there ever times where you had like maybe specific clients that come to mind where you changed their sleep or you got them to actually consistently sleep more and you saw a dramatic change. Um, and the reason I ask that, because I think I, I get questions all the time from other coaches like, Oh, what would you manipulate here? How would you adjust this person's diet or training? And my first answer is always like, well, how are this, their stress and sleep? Because it kind of none of it's going to matter if they're really stressed out or not sleeping at all. Um, but I'm just curious, do you have specific uh, uh, clients that come to mind where you saw significant changes just by sleeping better? I actually don't, which may sound ridiculous. <laughs> but the reason is that my interest in sleep really only emerged in 2011 or so. Got it. And around that time, I started listening to more podcasts, began reading books about sleep, and then eventually began reading papers about sleep. So I applied for my PhD in 2014. And it was really only around that time that I spent lots of time looking at all these different things. And most of my personal training was done between the years of 2009 and 2013. So while I had some sense that sleep was important, I was not nearly as well versed in the subject as I am now. And I don't think that it was nearly as much of a conversation topic either back then. I feel like it's really only the last two years or so that this subject's risen to the fore of the public imagination, in part because of the publication of some very popular books. And now there are various people lecturing around the world about the importance of sleep. And the good news is that people are waking up to how important it is. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think podcasts, I think in general, have had a big effect on, on getting that out there too. And I, for me as a, as a trainer, I mean, shoot, I've been coaching people for eight years now. I think it's been really helpful to have some kind of science and research being done. So I have something to back up my, uh, my method or my tool of my strategy of just trying to get people to sleep. Cause a lot of times, you know, like when you try to get somebody to sleep and they have resistance to it because it is a lifestyle change or they have to sacrifice time watching Netflix or whatever it is to get more sleep, they put such a pushback. But when you have data and science coming out that it's like, well, here's the repercussions. Like then it is just more, just easier to get people's buy-in. So I'm super grateful as well. Um, and that kind of leads me into the first question I had for you. And it's basically like, what's the most fascinating and I guess shocking statistic you've discovered uh, in your time since you started researching? It? And this is a very selfish question that I just wanted to ask you. Um, so I'm just curious <laughs> if anything stands out to you that was like, wow, that was, that was really um, paradigm shattering or just again, shocking. Yeah, I don't know, which is a rubbish answer. So I'm going to circumvent the question somewhat. And I'll tell you the most interesting thing that I've stumbled on recently. Perfect. And that is just how different people are in terms of their responses to certain stimuli. There was a paper that was published this year, which looked at 
how sensitive people are to the effects of artificial light at night on the synthesis of melatonin, which is a hormone that's produced by the brain that basically tells the cells throughout the body that it's dark outside and therefore to engage in activities that are appropriate to the dark period. And what these scientists found was that if you look at the people who are most sensitive to the melatonin, melatonin suppressing effects of light compared to the people who are least sensitive, then there was about a 60-fold difference between people in the degree to which artificial light suppressed melatonin synthesis, which is astonishing. So there are some people out there who are exquisitely sensitive to light at night, and there are some people for whom it might not be nearly such a big deal. And it's only really in recent years that we started to appreciate just how large those differences are between people. And we know also that things like the effects of sleep loss on cognitive function differ dramatically between people. About a third of people don't seem to be that affected by sleep loss if you look at how attentive they are after losing sleep, whereas about a third of people are completely crippled by it. And you see similar differences between people in terms of things like how much food they consume in response to sleep loss, and possibly also some other things too. So th that last part's actually pretty surprising to me um, that even one third of people aren't that affected because most of the stuff mm. that people talk about seem like everybody's kind of screwed if they don't get enough sleep. There's, there's even that, um, me and Amy talked about that gene that's like, it's like superhuman gene where people can get away with no sleep. And it's basically like 0.01% of the population or something like that. And yeah. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, it's the DEC2 gene. And the people, the superhumans, they still need more than six hours of sleep per night on average. Oh. But whereas, whereas they don't need that much sleep, if you restrict their sleep to less than that, they're still negatively affected, but they don't seem to bounce back from that sleep loss as much as other people do. So if you then give them the opportunity to catch up on sleep, then they won't oversleep as much as people without that rare gene variant will. So even at that extreme, they still need substantially more sleep than most people would have guessed, I think. And just to circle back to the idea that a third of people are quite resistant to the effects of sleep loss, that's just on attention, which is one tiny component of the range of different cognitive faculties that we need to function well as human beings. And it's probable that whereas those people might not be that affected in terms of their attention, some other aspects of cognitive function will be negatively affected. And just because their cognition in that instance isn't that negatively affected, it doesn't mean that things like their metabolic health might not be. Right. Okay. Um, and, and as far as the light stimulation goes at night, and I guess as far as this uh, this idea that your focus and your attentiveness might be derailed if you don't get that sleep too, how, what are practical ways people can actually test this? Because I know some people are listening that are like, well, I don't have a sleep lab near me to test this to see if I can get away with that or if if I need to be more cautious about those blue lights at night. Is there mm -hmm. any way to practically uh, see that? Or is it just in general, most people are still going to be negatively impacted regardless, even if some people are less impacted, so we all should be aware of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that all makes sense. So what I'll say is that study looked at melatonin specifically, and the only way to assess that well, there are multiple ways that you could assess that, but you could assess it by taking a blood sample from somebody, which somebody's not going to do, or you could measure a metabolite of melatonin called 6 sulfur toxy melatonin, which would be present in the urine. 
And the peak levels of that would be an hour or two after the peak levels in the plasma. But again, people aren't going to do that. So the question is, will people notice the effects of light at night? And they will in terms of things like their alertness and possibly their sleep latency, how long it takes them to fall asleep. So coming now to the final question and point that you made, I think it is the place to start. People should just assume that they are somewhat representative of the norms and therefore engage in good so-called sleep hygiene practices. Just as an aside, I don't like that term sleep hygiene, <laughs> but <clears throat> we'll park that. And I'll just say that what that means is that in the two hours or so before bedtime, people should be actively trying to reduce their exposure to artificial light and specifically to full spectrum light and any light that contains blue light because it's blue light that has the most alerting effect on our bodies, but also that tends to reduce the synthesis of melatonin most potently. And some practical ways to accomplish that would be to dim the lights, to turn some lights off if you don't have dimmers in your house. If you don't mind looking a bit odd, then you can wear blue blocking glasses. They do seem to be effective for that. Otherwise, dim the brightness settings on your devices. So TV, if possible, but certainly laptop and your phone. And there are also various different software tools that are available. So if you have a Mac, then you can use F.Lux, which is available for Windows too. If you've got an iPhone, you can use night shift mode. If you have an Android phone, you can use Twilight. And there's also a software program called Iris, which is quite popular among some people in the biohacking community, for example, which just gives you a greater range of different options compared to F.Lux. F.Lux is free, so I think that's a good place to start for most people. Yeah, that's and what then, I have. Yeah, the final thing I mentioned is just that it's really important to keep your bedroom dark, of course. So that means either wearing a sleep mask if you unavoidably are exposed to light in your bedroom or it means using blackout blinds or it means removing any source of artificial light that you can remove so if for example you currently have an alarm clock that emits blue light then you'd want to get that out of your room and if there's anything that does emit light then you probably want it to emit red lights because red light seems to be least disruptive to melatonin synthesis Got it. Very practical. I'm going to put like some links in that for the listeners listening so they can download those programs and stuff. Um, I use the Flux one. Um, I don't notice a huge difference, but one thing I will say is I didn't buy into the blue light blockers for a long time and maybe it was mm. just resistance to look like that. Um, <laughs> but when we had my daughter, um, I was like, you know what? I just need to go for it because I know she's going to be waking up in the middle of the night. Let me get to sleep as soon as I lay down. And it really did help quite a bit. My fiance gave me shit for a while, but then she bought into it and she's wearing them now as well. So um, it really does help. When yeah, and that, that actually raises an interesting point, which is that melatonin is present in breast milk too. So for new parents, it's important that the mother does try to attend to her light environment carefully. And so if she wakes up in the middle of the night for feeding for example then you want to use as little light as is possible at that time and i think that it's really handy having a pair of blue blockers regardless so if for example you occasionally travel internationally and you fly across three time zones or more you're likely to experience jet lag and in that instance blue blockers really come into their own and as another tip for people there's a really useful website called jet lag rooster 
that people can go to to find out the most appropriate times at which to use blue blocking glasses during intercontinental travel. Wow, that's really cool. That's actually super informative. And I think um, I, I've heard about that website briefly. Um, it might have actually been from you on, a, on another podcast, but I have heard of it. I never looked into it. Um, mm. when, last thing I want to touch on, on on just like getting quality sleep would be temperature. Is there anything that you would recommend as far as like cooling the room down? Like you talked about blacking out the room, wearing blue lock, mm. light lockers, stuff like that. Is there anything to say like a certain temperature of where you're sleeping? Yeah. So once more, there are likely to be individual differences. But with that said, current recommendations are to set the temperature of your bedroom to about 18 degrees C. And I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm guessing that it might be around. I'm not even going to say that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> so 18, 18 degrees Celsius seems to be about right for most people. So if you have air conditioning, then you can set the temperature accordingly. If you don't, then perhaps opening a window will be a good option for you. If it's not, then my favorite strategy is normally to use a fan. And you want to point the fan at your torso. There haven't been any studies that have looked at fan use and sleep quality, but I think it makes sense that it would improve sleep, especially during the hot summer months. You don't want to aim it at your face because you don't want to blow dust in your face. That could be disruptive to sleep, if anything. But for me personally, I've always found that using a fan is really helpful because it not only helps cool me down, but also it will act as white noise that's going to drown out any extraneous noises from outside or whatever that might otherwise wake me up. And then the final thing to mention is you, of course, want to use a bed which helps dissipate heat. And beds that contain springs, mattresses that contain springs, as opposed to foam mattresses, much more effectively dissipate heat. So spring mattresses seem to be better. And also, if you consider the sheets and so on, duvet, if it's the summer, you might not want to use a duvet at all. You might just want to use a really thin sheet. That's what I do personally. There's actually one more thing, just while I'm on this little monologue. Yeah. And that is temperature before bed is important to sleep too. And there was a meta-analysis, which is just a study that looks at all the studies that have been done on the subject so far and summarizes those results according to the quality of the studies that are included. And what they reported is that if people heat themselves by using, for example, a hot shower at 40 degrees Celsius is about right for at least 10 minutes, one to two hours before bed, then people tend to fall asleep substantially faster. And the reason is that you raise the temperature of your skin at the extremities, that actually helps draw heat out of your core. And the reduction in core body temperature and the temperature of the brain specifically seems to be important to initiating sleep. So if you have a hot shower an hour or two before bed for at least 10 minutes, then get out, put some socks on afterwards, you want to keep your feet warm. That's also been shown to help people fall asleep faster. Then make sure that your bedroom temperature is set appropriately. And before all of that, if you've got a foam mattress that you find keeps you hot at the moment, then consider getting a new one because it's surely the most important item of furniture that you have. That makes a lot of sense too, going from hot to kind of a cool temperature. They used to always do like an athletic fields like uh, contrast showers and stuff like that for recovery. So that, that does make sense. Um, and for those listening, 18 degrees Celsius is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I just looked it up. So I didn't know that off the top of my head. Don't worry. But um, <laughs> uh, 
uh, which makes sense. I've heard uh, between 60 to 67 is kind of like the recommendation. So 64 mm-hmm. is dead in the middle, which makes complete sense. Um, and I've always found that just like, like you said, I always have a fan or the window fan ceiling going, the ceiling fan going, something to kind of give me white noise. We even, this sounds funny, but we even bought a second baby sound machine that we have for my daughter because we like having that sound in our bedroom as well because <laughs> it kind of drowns out white noise and it helps us. Um, the mm-hmm. last thing I want to touch on in here to get good sleep would be uh, caffeine recommendations because it's always something I hear about. And I know there's, I want to say there's like a, it's either a four or six hour half-life of caffeine. I'd, I'd have to look. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I had caffeine at four. I was fine a couple hours later. And it's like, yeah, but is it still stimulating your nervous system late into the night? So I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So the half-life of caffeine seems to be about six hours. But if you look at the different studies, then they are a bit all over the place. The half-life is the amount of time that it takes after consuming something for the peak concentration of that compound to come down to half that peak level. And some people who have liver problems, for example, fatty liver disease, can have much more sluggish liver detoxification pathways. And as a result, the half-life of caffeine for them can be more than 24 hours. So people differ massively in this too. And for that reason, what I'll say again is that I'll I'll give a generic recommendation that people really should monitor how sensitive they are to caffeine. And we now know something about the genetic basis of that, for example. But as a rule of thumb, I generally suggest that people cut their caffeine consumption at least nine hours before their planned bedtime and that they also cap the total amount of caffeine at up to two milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body mass per day which is perhaps two small coffees for most adults but again if you consume more caffeine than that then you'll want to stop consuming caffeine earlier still because the greater quantity of caffeine that you consume the longer the half-life will be. Perfect. Super helpful. And I think it's unfortunate for a lot of people listening, I'm sure. But even um, for me, like what I did is I just switched to decaf after my first couple cups. And there's mm-hmm. something about, um, you know, like, I mean, you don't know this about me, but my business started as really like a blog. Like I just loved researching things and writing blogs. So the coffee mm-hmm. shop was like my second home, which led to way too much caffeine. Um, <laughs> so there's kind of like a social aspect to me, even when I'm alone, I still consider it an environmental thing where I just like sipping on a warm cup of coffee while I work because it creates more mm. production. And, uh, but I just switched to caffeine It just, you know, put some stevia in there. It tastes great. It just tricks me into thinking I'm drinking coffee. So, uh, but great. That's, that's super helpful for the people listening. Now we've kind of been diving into, uh, all the repercussions or like how important sleep is and so on and so forth. But what is classified as sleep deprivation? Like at what point can you say like you are officially sleep sleep deprived no matter who you are and how genetically gifted you are in the sleep realm? Um, And then what are the repercussions of that as far as performance, muscle, fat loss, things like that? Okay. Loaded question. (laughs) Yeah, Loaded (laughs) questions. Yeah. So where shall I start with that? Sleep deprivation, in its truest sense, is the complete absence of sleep. So I distinguish between sleep restriction and sleep Mm. deprivation. Sleep restriction would be giving somebody some time in bed overnight to sleep, but less than they need. So, for example, anytime you wake up to an alarm, you are restricting your sleep. Anytime you keep yourself up before the time at which you would naturally fall asleep, you're also restricting your sleep. 
if you pull an all-nighter and you have those nocturnal cups of cups of coffee and don't get any sleep whatsoever, then that's sleep deprivation. But that's just me being a pedant. So practically, how can you tell whether you are short on sleep over time? It's hard to give you a very clear answer on this, but what I would say is that if people can remove the breaks to getting enough sleep and then track their sleep patterns over time, what they might find initially is that they sleep substantially longer than they have been. And then over time, as they start to pay off any sleep debt, not that it's possible to truly fully pay off your sleep debt, as they start to pay off any sleep debt, their sleep duration will eventually stabilize at some level below the sleep duration that they had when they were first extending their sleep and removing those breaks on sleep. So what are some common breaks on getting enough sleep? They are, of course, things like stimulant consumption. We spoke about caffeine, but there are lots of different stimulants that people consume. Maybe you have ADHD and you take Adderall, for example. That will also interfere with your sleep. There are things like alcohol, which will also disrupt sleep. And alcohol is interesting because it tends to help people fall asleep faster. And people also spend a greater proportion of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep. Then later in the night, their sleep breaks up or fragments. So sleep's less restorative. And if you're like me, then you might find that because you've got those early awakenings and because you're now starting to stir earlier than you would do otherwise, you do end up losing sleep when you consume alcohol. So get rid of those things. Be attentive to your light environment. Attend to things like temperature too. So all those sleep hygiene basics that we discussed. And give yourself perhaps a week in which to try and catch up on sleep. And an ideal time for this might be during a holiday, for instance. Then if you're tracking your sleep, either using a written sleep diary or a wearable device such as a Fitbit or an Oura Ring or a Garmin device, whatever it might be, you can start to monitor those data and see where your sleep duration stabilizes. But what you'll also find is that the amount of sleep that you need will vary on an ongoing basis. So you might find, for example, that during the long nights of winter, you sleep more, and during the comparatively short nights of summer, you sleep less. I certainly find that myself. I probably sleep an hour and a half longer during the shortest days compared to the longest days. Now, the second part of your question is how does sleep loss affect us? So and before, before we dive into that, just because yeah. I, I got I to interject and ask something, two mm. things. One is kind of a funny question that I just want to throw at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we'll start with the first one that's not so funny. The first one would be, is there a quantitative number that you can give people? Because I know people listening are like, okay, well, what is like, what can I strive for? And I know on the last podcast yeah. I did about this, um, we talked about 49 hours a week, which is seven hours a night, but she was actually alluding to like maybe banking your sleep a little bit if you absolutely need to, but usually seven, eight hours is kind of the golden ticket. Um, would that be a similar recommendation to you? And then the second part of that question is how well do you follow that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the current recommendations set by the national sleep foundation are at least seven hours per night for 18 to 64 year old adults. It used to be seven to nine hours per night, but now I think people are increasingly recognizing that for some people, it's appropriate they sleep more than nine hours per night. But if we think about that deck two variant that leads to that short sleep phenotype, those people who are the shortest documented sleepers that we know of, they, they still need 
two hours of sleep per night. So I'd say at least seven hours per night for adults. And how well do I stick to that? I stick to it relatively well for five to six nights per week. <laughs> and then and then the other two I normally end up going out or seeing somebody and don't get nearly as much sleep as I should do. But I am very cognizant of my sleep. And I've actually had my own sleep difficulties in the last six months or so, unsurprisingly, since I moved to central London. Mm. And I've had some insomnia myself, some sleep maintenance insomnia where I haven't been able to stay asleep during the entire night. So I've changed some things in my own sleep ritual to make sure that I'm sleeping better. And one example of that is being more vigilant about my caffeine consumption. And for me personally, I know that I'm quite sensitive to caffeine. And now I'm strict about only using it when I'm well rested, which is the exact opposite to what most people do. Yeah. So for me, I very rarely consume caffeine more than three days a week. And on those days, I might have two cups of green tea tops, but nothing more than that. And I will also have those at the start of the day. The only exception to that would be if I'm going on a night out <laughs> and I need something to get me through the night. Right. So I, I, do, I do break my own rules, but when that does happen, I am careful to try and catch up on any lost sleep. But whereas I would once go to bed earlier to try and catch up, I don't do that so much anymore because what I found was that when I was going through that period of insomnia, that's common for people who experience insomnia to do, but I, I would find that some nights I would wake up frequently during the night and then I'd be very tired the next day. So I'd try and go to bed earlier. Then the quality of my sleep was worse. Whereas with insomnia, what you find is that if people can keep themselves up during the day and avoid napping, then when the time to sleep rolls around, there's a lot of pressure to sleep. So the quality of their sleep tends to be higher. And then if they wake up during the night, it's really important for them to then get out of bed, do something relaxing and dim lighting, and only go back to bed when they are very sleepy so that they effectively train their brains to reassociate their beds with being the place for sleep as opposed to a place where they're lying down, staring at the ceiling, thinking, if I don't get to sleep in the next five minutes, then tomorrow I'm going to be absolutely useless. Right. I actually have a couple of clients who suffer with insomnia that, that, that that's going to be super helpful for. Um, I, I used to get frustrated that, uh, so I believe I'm truly a non-responder to caffeine. Like it doesn't, I never get a buzz. I never feel like a big, crazy jolt of energy, but it actually, the more I learn about sleep, the happier I am because it doesn't negatively impact my sleep. I sleep like a baby every night and it, I can drink three, four cups throughout the day. I still don't drink them past a certain time, obviously, but um, I'm thankful for that now. Uh, when we talk about, you know, banking your sleep, and you mentioned that's not the best strategy, but for somebody like you, who you're getting good sleep five to six days a week, and then there's usually a night or two where you don't, I feel like that's pretty mm -hmm. practical for most people. It's, that seems like a realistic thing. Most people are getting good sleep most of the time. But the reality is, is we all have stressful days, we all go out on the weekend, we all have long nights at work at times, or a daughter or a son that wakes us up in the night, something that happens at least once or twice. Do these little things, I, I hate the word hack, but I'm going to say hack though. these hacks <laughs> that we're talking about, like blue light blockers or cooling your room, um, lowering your caffeine consumption or timing it better. Like, do those things make up for those lost hours or 
is it just kind of dampening the blow, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I don't really think that we can fully make up for lost hours. And I don't think that it's possible to truly bank sleep either. And that's because of the way that sleep is regulated. But with that said, I don't know anybody who hasn't lost some sleep over the course of his or her life other than somebody who was born today. And for that reason, everybody has some existing sleep loss. So most people have a little bit of sleep to catch up on. And therefore, if they pretend that they can bank sleep, what they find is that they can sleep more than normal initially. And that if they go through that period of sleep extension relative to how long they're sleeping at the moment, that will protect them against some of the negative consequences of subsequent sleep loss. And there's been some nice work on this, looking at cognitive function specifically. So there was a study, for example, that looked at this sleep banking protocol where people were allowed 10 hours in bed each night for one week, or they were allowed their habitual sleep duration for one week. Everyone was then allowed one night of 10 hours in bed, and then everybody went through one week of sleep restriction when they were allowed just three hours of sleep per night. And what they found was that during that sleep loss, the people who had that week of banking before were more vigilant, so they were less likely to fall asleep throughout the sleep loss period. And then after that intervention, everybody had five nights of so-called recovery sleep, which wasn't really recovery sleep. They were allowed eight hours of time in bed, which is probably typical of most people in 2019. And what they found was that during that recovery sleep period, people's vigilance returned towards their pre-sleep loss levels faster in the group that banked sleep. So while I don't think that it's truly possible to bank sleep, I do think that pretending that it is possible is likely to still benefit people, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, I mean, it's not necessarily the placebo effect, but I think even, I mean, there's a lot to say that the placebo effect has some merit to it. So I think that mm -hmm. does make sense. Um, and I think everything we're saying is just like the big, take home is like it's practical and that's what i really love because if we just say everybody needs nine to ten hours of sleep to be optimal it's just not realistic unless you're a paid nfl athlete you know something mm. like that um where you live to play a sport and train for sport you're probably going to easily get that sleep but yeah uh, but even then it's it's obviously that's not the i hope i mean that'd be cool if there were some nfl players listening to this podcast but i'm not sure that's the big <laughs> bulk of our audience um yeah. so so getting into i probably loaded that question up too much but no no that's fine i was i was gonna say I, I can return to the sleep pack question if you like yeah exactly let's touch on like performance muscle mass and fat loss ah okay so just, just going back to your other question, are there hacks that work? So those things that we spoke about earlier, those sleep hygiene fundamentals, I wouldn't really put those in the hack bucket. Mm -hmm. I think those are things that everybody should attend to. And there is a vast amount of scientific literature showing that they do help people sleep better. So I wouldn't consider those hacks. People are, of course, interested in various different supplements and so on. And I've spoken about the subject at length elsewhere, so I don't want to go into it too much now because I know that we've got other things to get to too. In short, a few sleep supplements seem to be helpful for some people. I wouldn't recommend any of them to everybody. It really depends on your particular sleep issue. There is one thing that I would call a hack of sorts, which seems to more profoundly positively affect sleep than anything else that I've seen in recent years for sure and it hasn't been studied that much and it's used specifically for people who have chronic insomnia 
but it's called intensive sleep retraining. And it's very interesting. So one form of insomnia is this sleep onset insomnia. People, they go to bed and they just can't fall asleep initially. Once they're asleep, they can sleep through the night. But some of these people, poor people, will be awake for hours before they can get any sleep whatsoever. And this intensive sleep retraining centers on a period of total sleep deprivation. And then what the scientists have people do is repeatedly try to fall asleep during the sleep deprivation period. So what they'll do is they'll have people try to fall asleep perhaps 50 times, and they try to do so as fast as possible. And then as soon as they're asleep, they wake them up. So basically, they're trying to cram relearning how to fall asleep into this 24-hour or so period. And the results are absolutely astonishing. And that sounds hyperbolic, but they really are very impressive. So people who go through this particular protocol, they fall asleep faster, they sleep longer in response to this too. They feel like they slept better, so their subjective perceptions of sleep quality are higher. But also their daytime sleepiness is lower. And even though this intervention lasts a grand total of barely more than 24 hours, many of these effects endure to six months or longer thereafter. So in terms of something that people can do in the short term that potently affect their sleep in the longer term, that is by far the most efficacious thing that I've seen. It's not something I'd recommend that people do by themselves, although there is a company out there named Thim, T-H-I-M, that has a wearable that's designed for this particular protocol specifically that is available to consumers. But if people have sleep onset insomnia, and I should say that this seems to help people who have sleep maintenance insomnia too, people who can fall asleep initially but then struggle to stay asleep during the night. But people, if they're willing, should consider that option if they have those particular sleep complaints and go to a sleep medicine clinic and get a sleep study done or just go through the standard diagnostic process for insomnia, which doesn't actually involve a sleep study, but then speak to a relevant qualified professional about whether that's an option for them. I love it. I love it, man. I'm going to put uh, some of that information in the show notes so people can actually go look into it. Like I said, I, I actually have a couple of people in my head that I'm like, this might be something that's actually worthwhile. It can be a frustrating thing as a coach when you're trying to manipulate lifestyle changes, stress changes, nutrition, training, all these different things, and it's just going nowhere. Um, and then zombie mm. is not changing. So I think that's super practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I can get to the, to the other question, which was right. the original question, <laughs> <laughs> which is the negative consequences of not getting enough sleep. And we could, of course, look at lots of different things now. And we could also look at different types of study designs too. So If you look at cross-sectional studies where people are just asked to report how long they sleep and then their sleep is tracked over time subsequently, then people who report sleeping less than seven hours are more likely to die in years to come. So meta-analysis that looked at all of these studies found that for each one-hour reduction in sleep duration below seven hours per night, there's a 6% higher risk of death from any cause. I should say that not all meta-analyses have found that so far, but that particular one did. And as far as I can tell, it was relatively well done. Another example of this would be that 
the same study found that each one hour reduction below seven hours per night was associated with a 7% high risk of developing coronary heart disease, which is a contributor to cardiovascular disease in general and heart disease, the number one cause of death worldwide. We also know that people who report short sleep are at higher odds of developing obesity. They tend to be predisposed to developing type 2 diabetes, as well as neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Now, with all of that said, to actually work out whether sleep loss cause, causes all of this dysfunction, you need experiments in which people come into the lab and their sleep is tracked carefully and it's restricted over time and then you measure relevant variables in response to that sleep loss. And the studies that have done this have also consistently reported a variety of different negative effects. So I know that your audience is very interested in body composition, so we can start there. And there have been a couple of particularly nice studies on the subject. One was done about nine years ago, and they looked at overweight middle-aged adults. And they went through a two-week period, two groups. One was allowed five and a half hours of time bed each night, so probably two and a half hours less than they would typically have. And another was allowed eight and a half hours of time bed. And they gave them standardized diets during this time. And what they found was that people in the short sleep condition lost less of their weight as fat mass. And they lost 55% less of their weight as fat mass specifically. And unsurprisingly, they found that during that sleep loss period, they also tended to burn less fat when they measured substrate utilization. They also had increased hunger. So even though these people were consuming standardized diets, that suggests that if this was the real world, then they might have also consumed more calories. We now know that that seems to be the case based on some other studies. And then these findings that I just mentioned were recently corroborated by a study by Sean Youngstead. And they looked at overweight and obese adults. They looked at calorie restriction alone or calorie restriction plus sleep restriction as per the previous studies. But they looked at this on only five nights each week. So that mimics the working week for many people. Lots of people will lose sleep from Monday to Friday and then try and catch up on the weekend. This was eight weeks long. And again, they found that during that period of sleep loss, people lost less of their weight as fat mass. Now, what I mentioned just then was that when people lose sleep, they tend to eat more. And when scientists have compiled the results of all the different studies that have looked at this, they typically find that people consume about 385 calories per day more after sleep loss, so sleep restriction. And that might not sound like that much, but if you add that up over the course of the year, then that's about the amount of energy that's in 18 kilograms of fat tissue. I'm not saying that the difference over a year would be 18 kilograms of fat tissue. I absolutely wouldn't expect it to be. It'd be much less than that. But that is interesting and alarming. And it's also worth considering that this is when people have access to the same foods. And again, in the real world, people's food choices might vary in response to their sleep. And what seems to be the case is that people tend to favor more energy-dense, palatable foods after sleep loss. So it could be that sleep loss is not only leading people to consume more calories, but also the quality of those calories is worse. Now, if we move to muscle growth, which is also, of course, very important body composition, 
then there haven't been many studies on this, but there are lots of studies that have results that suggest that sleep loss is likely to impair muscle growth too. So we know, for example, that sleep loss tends to quite dramatically affect cortisol rhythms. And if anything, it tends to raise cortisol levels. And it definitely reduces testosterone levels in men, as well as reducing IGF-1 typically. And the cumulative effects of those changes you'd expect to lead to a lower skeletal muscle protein balance, which over time would lead to either less muscle growth in response to a hypertrophy training program or to more muscle loss in response to, for example, a negative energy balance. And there have been some studies on other animals too that have looked at this. And what they found was that during sleep deprivation, male rats will lose muscle very quickly. The encouraging news though is that if they go through resistance training during this time, then the reduction in muscle cross-sectional area is much lower when they have resistance training. And also the resistance training tends to normalize some of the changes in hormones in response to that sleep loss. And then because skeletal muscle is the largest glucose-sensitive sink that we have, it's unsurprising that sleep loss also potently affects glucose metabolism. We've known for 20 years that as little as five nights of sleep restriction to four hours per night can lead people who are otherwise healthy to temporarily become pre-diabetic. And there are lots of reasons for this. So sleep loss, for example, will reduce glucose uptake by the brain. It tends to impair how well insulin signals in fat tissue. It also tends to increase gluconeogenesis or the production of glucose by tissue such as the liver. And that's probably because of increased activity in the sympathetic branch of the nervous system. It also increases inflammatory cytokine levels, which could contribute to metabolic dysregulation too. And I'll just mention that the way that sleep is disrupted is also likely to affect many of these different consequences too. So for example, sleep loss early in the night might not lead to the same consequences as sleep loss late in the night. And that's partly because of the architecture of sleep. So sleep is very heterogeneous. Early in the night, you tend to have a higher proportion of deep sleep. And then late in the night, as people will recognize by the fact that they tend to remember their dreams when they wake up in the morning, sleep tends to contain more REM sleep, which is that stage in which we dream. And deep sleep and REM sleep have related, but also some distinct functions. So during deep sleep, for example, our bodies produce lots of growth hormone, which is important to remodeling of connective tissues such as tendon. Whereas during REM sleep, we know that this stage of sleep seems to be important to things like emotion regulation and cardiovascular health too, as well as perhaps the creativity. So all of that leads me to think that sleep loss plays a causal role in the development of many of these different diseases. And we could now speak about things like the brain. I'll just say that there's very strong evidence also that sleep loss is likely to causally affect risk of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. And we know that sleep loss will also affect our performance in the short term too. So for example, attention lapses are much more commonplace after a night of sleep loss. And that's because this these midline brain structures called the default mode network, which 
activate in advance of when we daydream become more likely to become active when we are engaging in a task on which we're trying to focus. So what you should have is a stable flip-flop between activity in the attention network, which is important to staying on task and focusing on a piece of work, and activity in the default mode network, which is basically the neural substrate of the ego, but also it's just involved in rumination and daydreaming. After sleep loss, that flip-flop becomes unstable. So now we have these intrusions of the daydreaming, and we just can't stay focused on our work as a result of that. So that's a long way of saying that the cross-sectional evidence suggests that sleep loss leads to all sorts of negative health outcomes and ultimately perhaps an increased risk of dying from any cause. But then these intervention studies also show that sleep loss is going to negatively affect body composition, various aspects of metabolic regulation, cognitive function, and I didn't mention things like immune function, but that is also negatively affected by sleep loss, as is things like how much pain we experience. Generalized pain tends to increase after sleep loss, and our tolerance of pain will also decrease after sleep loss, which for people who are very interested in body composition is very relevant because training hard is uncomfortable. Yeah. So if you want to go in the gym and bang some weights around, then you're going to find that if you're doing high volume sessions, then your performance might be impaired if your sleep's been poor recently. Man, if you had a mic, I'd tell you to drop it. You just crushed that question. There's so much good information in that. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people understand that not getting enough sleep is, is a big deal, but I think they ignore it because they don't have the facts in front of them and they kind of result to this idea of, well, you know, I feel fine. And it's like, well, how would you feel if you actually obeyed to all these these guidelines that you're you're talking about um i mean at the end of the day it sounds like there's there's metabolic consequences there's a lack of energy expenditure so you're not going to burn as much fat um you're not going to maintain muscle on a cut or build as much muscle because of all these processes your performance goes down your creativity goes down um likely because of these cognitive issues your discipline and your inhibition and your ability to adhere to a diet goes down and, and probably leads to cravings going up i mean there's mm -hmm. just endless negative consequences to what you're saying um, even glucose and insulin sensitivity issues where you're not going to be utilizing the carbohydrates or the calories you're consuming because of this. Mm. Um, so you just crushed that question, man. I'm super, super pleased with that answer. That was amazing. Uh, this kind of leads me to my next question as far as like when we get more in depth with nutrition in general, are there specific recommendations with nutrient timing or even specific macronutrient breakdowns um, that lead to better sleep? Or is it pretty much um, for the macro question, is it just all calories or, or is there merit to say, uh, I know there was like this whole carb backloading thing where people put carbs in the evening and, and that mm. helps sleep and yada, yada. Mm -hmm. Is there any evidence that you've seen fascinating with nutrient timing and things like that? Yeah, it's <laughs> a really, really big subject. So I'll try, I'll try and keep this, I'll try and keep this relatively tight and I'll just give people the highlights. Perfect. In short, there are a few studies that have come out in recent years, which lead me in general to suggest people to consume the majority of the calories early in the day. And there is also some evidence that consuming carbohydrate later in the day tends to positively affect sleep. So let me just go into this in a little bit more depth. Mm. So first, I'll speak about time-restricted eating, which is consumption of all calories for the day within a period of 12 hours or less. 
And this has, of course, become popular in recent years, probably started in public conscience around the time of Martin Burkham popularizing this sort of 16-8 type approach to eating. And two studies that have come out recently, or three studies by the same group, have basically shown that if people skip dinner, then they tend to experience a number of different improvements in metabolic health. So for example, they will experience a drop in morning blood pressure, which is very substantial. They will tend to have slightly better blood sugar regulation, blood lipid regulation. Their hunger, perhaps counterintuitively, tends to be more even. And I think that many people would expect that they would go to bed hungry if they stopped consuming all calories for the day by 3 p.m., but that doesn't seem to be the case at all. So those studies were carefully controlled and showed these beneficial effects, largely in overweight and pre-diabetic adults. There's also some work looking at what happens if you assign a smaller number of calories to dinner in comparison to a larger number of calories, such that the total number of calories consumed in the day is the same. And what that study found was that when people consume fewer calories at dinner, their overnight heart rate variability was higher, which is generally a sign of better sleep. They didn't really look at sleep, so I think it's premature to conclude that they definitely would have slept better. But that certainly jives with many people's experiences. I have so many people who speak with me about their aura ring data, and they say, oh, my, my pulse rate variability overnight was much higher when I had an earlier dinner. And that, to me, makes sense. And I've actually started advancing my own dinner recently, such that I'm having a very early dinner. And I definitely feel like it's positively affected my sleep. Now, in general, for... <coughs> various different things related to metabolic health, it does make sense to consume carbohydrates early in the day. There's some nice work from the University of Cambridge in recent years that has looked at this. And in short, if you look at people's blood sugar excursions over the course of the day, then consuming more carbohydrates early in the day seems to be good for blood sugar regulation. Now, with that said, there were a few studies, particularly 10 to 12 years ago, that looked at consuming high glycemic load carbohydrates at the final meal of the day. And what they found, and this does make sense physiologically, is that when people consume high glycemic load carbohydrates four hours or so before bed, they tend to fall asleep faster. And the reason for this is likely that if you consume high, high glycemic load carbohydrates, then you get a large insulin response from the pancreas and insulin then drives certain amino acids, some of the large neutral amino acids, which include the three branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and baleine, into skeletal muscle, which is a good thing for muscle hypertrophy. But what that means is that there's then less competition for amino acids, those large neutral amino acids going into the brain. and that means that tryptophan can occupy the large neutral amino acid transporter, and tryptophan acts as a precursor to melatonin. So the thinking is, if you consume that high glycemic load meal, you have more tryptophan going into the brain, and therefore more melatonin synthesis, which then helps people fall asleep faster. And 
that all kind of makes sense. But I think that practically speaking, it's more important for people to attend to their blood sugar regulation. And I don't think that you need to consume that type of high glycemic load dinner to positively affect your sleep, especially given this recent evidence, which has shown that consuming an earlier dinner leads to changes that, if anything, should lead to improved sleep quality. So if we think now about what's practical for most people, what I'll say is that a 6 to 12-hour caloric period, so the time elapsed from your first calorie-containing event of the day, so that could be coffee with cream, for example, until your last of the day, should probably be six to 12 hours long. I wouldn't go less than six hours. I know that this one meal a day approach is popular in certain circles at the moment, but certainly if you're interested in optimizing your body composition, then I think that it's important to frequently maximally stimulate skeletal muscle protein balance. And for that reason, trying to cram all of your calories into a short period is, is less likely to help you hold on to muscle or build muscle over time. So six, 12 hour period. and people should probably not start consuming any calories until at least half an hour after they naturally wake up. And I would cut all calorie consumption by at least two hours before bedtime. But for most people, having that period relatively early in the waking day is likely to be a good thing. If you can't have it early in your day, then you probably still want to put the majority of your calories at your first and second meals of the day, as opposed to later meals. There are exceptions to that recommendation. If, for example, you are an off-season bodybuilder and you've got very high energy intake requirements, let's say you're consuming 7,000 calories a day, don't try and consume 7,000 calories in the six-hour period. That's just silly. So there are those exceptions, but I think that recommendation is useful for most people. And then finally, it's probably fine if you occasionally stray from that pattern. So diet regularity, being consistent in the times at which you consume meals, is important and there's some really nice work from the university of nottingham showing that doing so is again beneficial for metabolic health in terms of blood sugar regulation blood liquor regulation and appetite regulation but if you occasionally stray let's say it's the weekend you're out with your friends and you want to have a beer then go for it and don't lose sleep over it you'll be absolutely fine and there's some preclinical work showing that if you use that sort of time restricted eating approach for the majority of days then you'll probably experience the vast number of benefits that you would if you stuck to it every single day of the week. I love it, man. Super practical. I love how you kind of zone it back into what people can actually take away. And it's kind of funny because it almost flips the old style of lean gain style diet completely around where it was like eat barely anything all day and just cram a ton of calories in at night, which... <laughs> Granted, I did for a while, and I remember feeling like, oh, I can just fall asleep right away. And, and when you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, you eat so much food, you're just lethargic, and you just pass out. But then you wake up in the middle of the night sweating, and your gut is just trying to digest, and all your, your focus is there. Um, so it makes sense, man. And I love the... I love bringing the science into this and making it practical. Um, you've provided so much value. I know we're running out of time here, but man, you have literally answered all of my questions and then some. Um, you went on a couple rants that were super, <laughs> super valuable. Um, and, and so, you know, the audience loves that because when I do my solo shows, that's exactly what I do. But I find those very interesting. And I actually really enjoy when people just get to kind of go in their zone and their expertise and just just go off. So I really appreciate you elaborating so much on everything. Um, the last question I have for you before we sign off is actually a personality question that you did not get to see on the show notes. So <laughs> this is a just a funny question I ask all of my guests as they come on at the, the end of the show. 
and it is a situation. So you're in London. So let's say you're flying to me in Seattle. You have a long flight ahead of you and you have two empty seats next to you and you can put anybody in those chairs dead or alive, but they cannot be friends or family. You also get one book and one album to listen to. Who are you sitting next to? What's in your book bag and what's on your headphones? Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. So I really don't want to say something that's really obvious and cliched. It's the kind of thing that everybody between the age of 25 and 35 in London would say about their dream guest to sit next to. Does this person have to be alive at the moment? Nope. They can be dead or alive. Oh, God, that's hard still. What's the, what's, what's the cliche answer from, from over there? Well, the, the, Yeah, the cliched answer at the moment would be David Attenborough. Oh, okay. And I do have a huge amount of respect for him and i look back at some of his early work there's a zoo quest series specifically from the 50s and 60s when he goes to places like borneo and madagascar mm. and the footage is just astonishing and quite jealous <laughs> i think he's just had the most remarkable life and in recent years he has also done a lot of good because he's become very aware of the fact that the natural world is degrading so quickly. And he's had a, a huge impact on how much attention people pay to things like plastic waste over here. Mm. And I wonder at times whether the focus is excessive given the other things that we should be attending to, but for sure it's been a net good thing. So he would be up there. Well, nobody has said him, and I've had multiple guests from, from London and okay. the United Kingdom, so you can absolutely throw him out there. Okay. And then the other person, it would probably be somebody self-serving. So right now, the startup that I work for that I can't really speak about is in the process of raising some money. So as a pragmatist, I would probably pick a billionaire with a very large interest in digital health and yeah. take the opportunity to chew his or her ear off about the importance of bringing our product to the world. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll go with that. And then I would be listening to which album, was it album specifically that you asked? Yep, which makes it way more difficult because everybody thinks artists at first. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd want it to be something that's chilled out, I think. So my favorite artist is probably Purple Disco Machine. He's just, he's got a sound which never fails on the dance floor. And I've been to a few of his nights, so defector nights and so on. And they're always so much fun. And everyone just has the best time. So Purple Disco Machine can't really go wrong with him. But Love otherwise, it. it might be Zero Seven, something chilled like that, or Bonobo, Black Sands. That's a corker as well. And then the other question was a book, right? Yep. So I pick a book that I haven't yet read, and it would be the book that I'm currently most interested in reading, which isn't actually necessarily the book that I'm currently reading. <laughs> so what would that be? I'm just going to pick the, the book that I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading Homo Deus. I've read Harari's other two books. I read them out of order, and I started reading Homo Deus a while ago and got about 100 pages in and then got distracted for the next eight months. 
So I'm rereading that from the start. So I'll bring that with me too. Sorry, that took a lot longer than it should have done. But no, I love it. I was, was not expecting that. So we'll go. We'll go. Attenborough, billionaire. I'll pick Black Sands by Bonobo and Homo Deus. Why not? I love it, man. And it's never a quick answer because people are always shocked by it. And they're like, oh, shit, who would I pick? And those were those were great answers, man. Very different than what I've heard in the past. So, dude, thank you so much for being here. I cannot say it enough. I appreciate your time. I found this super informative. I know the audience is going to agree with that. Before I let you go, is there anything you want people to go check out? Your, you have a website, social media, all those things. Like now is the time. Let them know where they can find your work. Thanks. Not really. It's a short answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I don't have anything to plug, which in a way I feel good about because I'm, I'm just here and I, I don't have any axe to grind. I just, I just want to help people out. But I, I am on Instagram and Twitter. I don't use either of them much, but I, I will get back to you if you contact me on those eventually. I'm not using them at the moment at all, really, but I'm at GDM Potter for Gregory David Maxwell Potter. So you can find me there. Otherwise, I'm also on LinkedIn if people have specific sleep complaints that they want some help with or otherwise just want to get in touch in a more formal way. And that's about all. I love it, man. I, I'll put all those in the show notes. And I appreciate your time because I often talk about one of my favorite books is called The Go-Giver. And I often talk about that's kind of how you have to live your life and lead with that mentality. And the fact that you come on the show, you help my audience, you are more than willing to do this, uh, to spend your time with me is the definition of a go-giver. And you don't have any plug to sell or anything like that, man. So thank you so much. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here, and I'll see you next time.